Well, happy Friday and welcome to Peak Off Fridays. We're glad you're here. We discussed Ayn Rand's personal courage last week. Your response to that episode was outstanding and well-deserved given the answers that Peak Off shared with us and that our host, James Valiant, shared as well. James, how are you doing today? I'm doing well today. How are you guys doing? Fantastic. It's a good week. It's a good day. I've been looking forward to this because this week we're going to look at several carefully selected, now selected by you, James, not me this time. Um, And thank you for doing all the hard work. I just come in and do the easy part. (laughs) Carefully selected questions and answers from the section entitled Human Nature for more on courage and confidence. Now, in last week's discussion, we discussed examples of how Ayn Rand actually lived the ideas that she originated and that she advocated. And you know, from our show, if objectivism really is the owner's manual for human life, a philosophy for living on earth, these ideas are meant to be applied. So in keeping with the title, keeping it real, bringing ideas down to earth, let's discuss and apply Dr. Peekoff's answers to more of these questions on courage and fear. And you're starting us off with, with question number one. Ayn Rand said in Atlas Shrugged, this will take you back to last week. Ayn Rand said in Atlas Shrugged that courage is the virtue of being true to existence and confidence is being true to one's own consciousness. And the questioner asks Dr. Peekoff, how do you justify this? <laughs> it's kind of a bold question because, of course, yes. Dr. Peekoff is not Ayn Rand, but I, I, I love her formulation, but it is a it, bit in prose. And, and Well, it does and, take a little unpacking because yeah. some people confuse courage and confidence. And really, one, one concept is directed at the values in the world that you're seeking. The other is the value of your own consciousness and your own confidence and security in your own judgment. And of course, the two imply one another in effect, if you understand objectivism. But there is a distinction here. And Dr. Peacock gives really a wonderful, wonderful answer here. Courage, I take that to mean that there is a potential loss of a major value confronting you. You feel some fear or apprehension because that value is so important that you are committed to it. It is so important that you will act in reality, regardless of your inner state. Encourage, then, you're focused on the value in reality, not on your inner state. That's why she says it's being true to existence. Confidence, on the other hand, is a belief in your own conclusions, the operation of your own mind, as against self-doubt, and who am I to know? So you're saying, no matter what the external pressure, I'm true to the content and mechanism of my own consciousness, and conclusions, excuse me, of my own consciousness. It's in that sense that you are being true to your own consciousness. Of course, courage and confidence imply each other. I don't think that you can have one without the other, but there are different aspects. Being confident of your conclusions and therefore of your values is the necessity of being prepared to be courageous to fight for them. And you know, this really, it, it also harkens back to another essay we did um, Certainty and Happiness by Dr. Peacock. Mm. There's an entire lecture yes. on just this point. And uh, objectivism has uh, the answer here, right? If you're, <clears throat> if you're reality-based, right? If reason is your tool of cognition, that if that's your only way of knowing, 
if it's our primary means of survival, our most basic means of acting, knowing what we're doing, then of course, it's all important that we have a degree of confidence in our knowledge. Insofar as mystics tell us that it go by your feelings and it's just your feelings versus mine. Insofar as the radical skeptics say no one can know anything, both of them, both of them in effect are hobbling confidence, hobbling in effect the ability to be courageous in action because that in it turn rests on the confidence of our ideas. You know, we talked last week, we kind of cautioned against mistaking courage for false bravado or recklessness. So I love that Dr. Peikoff starts this off with, I take to mean that there's a potential loss of a major value confronting you. You, you feel some fear or apprehension because that value is so important, but you are committed to it. Right. And it takes courage to go for that job that you always wanted that may not be easy to get. It takes courage just to be creative, just to be good. You know what it takes to be good at what you do at your job. It takes courage to be creative and it takes courage to be consistent. It takes courage to take that first step to start a relationship. It takes courage to commit to an intimate relationship. It takes courage to end a relationship that isn't working out. Most of all, it takes courage, I can tell you this after 25 years of marriage, to work on it, because it does take work. It's pleasant work, <laughs> but nonetheless, it takes effort to maintain a relationship over that period of time. And each of those things takes courage. Yes. And that's the kind of courage that we're talking about, a courage that will yield you a, a real value, one of the primary values in life. I cannot imagine, you know, someone, their country gets invaded and you live in a relatively free country and you're being invaded by a dictatorship, it takes courage to say, no, I'm gonna go fight. I'm gonna go pick up a gun and I'm gonna go to the front lines and fight those guys. That takes courage, but it's a real value you're protecting. You're protecting your freedom, your life and the freedom and lives of the people you love. That takes courage, but a real value has to be involved. You're not just going to throw your life away. This is where egoism and the standard of life really kicks in here. You're not just going to risk your life fecklessly for no value. And, not, and more than that, we actually know how to measure whether the value is worth it or not. And so you can say to yourself, well, well, we'll get to those questions later. <laughs> uh, but, but I think that's a good start. Yeah, and especially because... On the Ayn Rand Center UK channel, we've got a lot of young objectivists, folks who have not faced as many fears, perhaps, as some of us older folks have, and who need to be told that, that fear is to be expected and to be overcome by your conviction. That's what courage is. We mentioned one time that Robert Heinlein, science fiction author, was a fan of Ayn Rand, even snuck her into some of his stories. And one of my favorite Heinlein quotes, he says, courage is the complement of fear. A man who is fearless cannot be courageous. He is also a fool, a fool. A man who is fearless cannot be courageous. Now, sometimes we use fearless as a euphemism or metaphor for somebody who faces their fears. But yes, if you really convince yourself, no fear, think of the logo, no fear. <laughs> you have no courage if you have no fear. You have nothing to overcome. That's it. There's nothing to overcome. You know, uh, you said something very wise yesterday in your podcast together, which, by the way, was an outstanding podcast. Using, using sorrow and challenge 
positively. Uh, I, wow. You point out that every emotion has a value. It has a function in our consciousness. Fear <laughs> is a very valuable kind of emotion. We automatize that something's a danger to us and we act on that fear and the fear is appropriate. Very, very often fear can save our lives, save us from injury or save us from doing something stupid. Fear is a good thing if it is not a neurotic fear, an out of context fear, an irrationally based fear. Uh, if it is, or to put it in the positive way, if it is really a value that's worth the risk or the effort, then that's what constitutes objective courage. <laughs> that therefore there really has to be an objective value that you're really seeking. Otherwise it is just foolhardiness, a risk for no end. Yeah, yeah, the simpler emotions like fear are more like gold mines or iron mines or steel mines, copper mines in that you don't know going in if it's going to turn out to be fool's gold, but something is there and you need to know what it is. Emotions are not tools of cognition, exactly. but they're telling you something is going on. And yes, those emotions have work to do and you need to let your emotions do that work. But I love that Heinlein quote too, because he gets snarky at the end. He says, courage is the complement of fear. A man who is fearless cannot be courageous. And then he says, he is also a fool. Well, that's a bit of a dig, but what he's really saying is he is also not focusing on reality. That's it. And That's underneath it. all the bravery and all the bravado are the you facts. Know what I love about that quote is that without knowing it, he's actually uh, applying, as, in a sense, objectivism to this, uh, perhaps unconsciously. You know, Ayn Rand said that all of her virtues, uh, honesty, justice, integrity, they were all expressions of rationality, of applying reason to the problem of survival. She didn't specify that in John Galt when she talks about courage and confidence, but it's the same thing. And it's Heinlein who's there making that point about courage and confidence. They're, the, they're simply applications of reason to the problem of survival. I can't let my emotion hold me back from getting something that's truly a value. On the other hand, I can't ignore the emotion if it's telling me something's truly a danger that's not worth it. So courage and confidence, just like all of the other objectivist virtues are merely applications of reason to the problem of survival. Now, since you mentioned our discussion of emotions yesterday, here's another one that folks have a, interesting ideas about. What about instincts? In our second question, Dr. Peacock was asked, Ayn Rand denies that man has instincts, but what about the fight or flight response for evading your captors? <laughs> and I thought that was a kind of a softball, but Dr. Peacock takes it seriously and knocks it out of the park. He says, I don't regard those as instincts or even as universally true. They say there's supposed to be a flight or fight instinct making you flee from threats, but there are all kinds of cases in which human beings fight when they should flee. In bars, I love this example, in bars, for instance, I'll get back to that. They also do nothing when it's just foolhardy or flee when they should fight as when they capitulate to evil or when they preach, love thine enemy. You talk about the instinct to fight or flee, but what about when your moral guidance for civilization is to prostrate yourself before the enemy? Well, that should wipe out the idea of fight or flight as an instinct. <laughs> he goes on, but he makes exactly the right point that what we're calling an instinct is so obviously philosophy, culture. It's, it's not universal. If it was an instinct, it would be. And it's, and it's so obviously depends on the, the ideas that we've accepted. 
oh, first it begins with cognition, right? If I don't know that something's a danger, I'm not even going to kick in a, any kind of react fear reaction or adrenaline coming on me. If, if, if a child doesn't know that something is a danger heading towards them or could be a danger if they put it in their mouth or something, they'll just obliviously put it in their mouth because they don't even know that there's a danger. So to even initiate this requires some kind of fear response that uh, uh, they call demands a certain specific kind of reaction. But even that's a choice fight or flight. So what determines that? What determines whether I'm going to flee or whether I'm going to fight? And of course, there's a third alternative, freeze. That happens too all the time. So not only do you require cognition and evaluation to recognize that something is a danger to even get your adrenaline up. I mean, a baby looking at a car heading at them at a million, that's why children have to be told not to run into the street, right? <laughs> they don't even know it's a danger. This is a danger. This will, this could injure or kill you. And so just learning that, first of all, and then secondly, knowing the alternatives in a given context, knowing the alternatives in a given context, knowing that, that a value is even under threat and how to properly respond. Yeah. All of that, more than that too, you can train yourself uh, you could condition yourself to deal with certain, I mean, I remember as a lawyer, as a young lawyer in my 20s doing my first jury trial, talk about being nervous. <laughs> my palms were sweaty. I'm doing it for the first time. And it's a real live criminal case. I mean, something could really happen to people in the real world. Someone could go to jail. Some, you know, innocent victim could, you know, uh, never get justice. And so you've got this pressure on you. Of course, of course, of course. Uh, but you know, the fact that I'm facing a, an alternative that's putting fear or pressure on me is, does not tell me how to respond yet either. That will be the result of my automatized values and my automatized cognitions. Uh, absent those, there is no such thing as uh, an instinct for flight or, or fight. It, uh, yes. it, no such thing exists in human beings. <laughs> and automatized doesn't mean built in. It doesn't mean instinctual. It means developed over time as a result of the cognition you've done. Exactly. Habituated. Yeah, I've developed a habituated fear of certain things, thank goodness, which where I don't have to rethink why it's a danger to me. And so if I see a car heading at me at 90 miles an hour, I'm going to run out of the way. I, I don't even need to go through a new cognitive process. I've automatized that. I've habituated the thought, habituated that in my behavior, and now it just automatically happens. Um, so there's a big difference there between a trained instinct or what Aristotle called your second nature, the, the, the habits you get into through uh, acting and behaving versus something that's truly innate, which is what people mean by instinct. Uh, there's nothing innate about fighting, fleeing, freezing, when you'll do that, how you'll do that, and under what circumstances. All of that depends upon the cognition and evaluation that, and the behavior that you have or haven't previously done. Yeah, I would say that the uh, the best example for somebody to say, to, to say, well, there's obviously instincts because I had a certain experience in my life that I walked into a situation, say a bar or a bookstore, whatever it is, and something was just off. And I just felt in my gut that something was quite off. And, and then later I found out that, after, you know, after I left that the place was robbed <laughs> or whatever it is, you know, that, that kind of, um, I mean, to be generous with, with people's uh, examples of that, you know, you, you can say that um, if you walk into a situation where 
I, I don't know, what would you, how would you describe, maybe you have an opinion on this. About well, doc, Dr. Pearson, Lee Pearson would describe those as what he calls inklings. 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 Yeah. But specifically about Never how, ignore the gut. Right. Never right. ignore the gut. <laughs> but like, it may be that the gut is telling you to do something that's inappropriate because the evaluation that's giving you that emotion, that gut feel. But also we get a subconscious integration sometimes of a situation before we get the full conscious grasp of it. In other words, I, 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 my experience has conditioned me to believe that these kind of situations can be dangerous or there could be something I'm unaware of. So I feel apprehension. Do not ignore that apprehension. It does not tell you yet how to act. It does not yet justify the basis of the apprehension yet, but your gut it, what some people call intuition is a vital part of our cognition, but it too is part of our, to some extent, it's part of our trained instinct. It's the things that we've habituated uh, in ourselves and the things that we've, because of our, what we know and what we've experienced, we're conditioned into ourselves about, hmm, there's something fishy about this situation. Uh, and I'm yeah. not quite sure. It could just be my subconscious. See, that's the other part. The subconscious is starting to integrate something before it's really fully conscious in your mind. So whether it's a trained instinct or it's just a subconscious inkling, I would say never ignore the gut. The gut may be too cowardly. The gut may be too reckless, but the point is don't ignore the gut. The gut is telling you something about your own experience or about what your subconscious is trying to push you into seeing. <laughs> if that right. makes yeah, sense. Yeah. No, that, that certainly makes sense. And it certainly is in line with unpacking the idea of, uh, you know, you see people who are acting off or shady or, you know, those kinds of kind of vague terms that you would say that th this person is not, he, he's looking around, he's darting his eyes back and forth. He's, you know, what, what is the, and you, you have to ask yourself, why is this person motivated to, to be acting this way? You see, but and, that's it. It's it, yeah. my experience before she teaches me that if you don't look me straight, if you never look me straight in the eye, that I'm going to start doubting you or questioning you. And, you know, your credibility may be an issue because of that previous experience. It may be that this guy isn't looking me straight in the eye. And so I start just getting this weird feeling. There could be some other innocent explanation for it. You know, maybe he's got a, Sty in his eye or something. Maybe he's got eye problems that day. But the point is, don't ignore your gut. Yeah. Uh, what it, it may not be right, may not be wrong, and only our cognition can really decide that. Uh, but on the other hand, your gut is telling you what your previous experience has trained you. You know, guys who don't look me straight in the eye may be lying to me. Yeah, yes. like with emotions, they're important, those gut feelings, but they are not cognition either. Uh, right. Real quick, because especially newcomers to objectivism and have the challenges with this concept of tabula rasa. And what we mean by instincts when we talk about trained instincts is not that. The people who question tabula rasa say, no, 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 you have inbuilt knowledge, innate knowledge, as Apollo Zeus says in the chat. When we talk about instincts in this context, we're talking about, uh, call it innate knowledge as Apollo Zeus does. But when we say that a foal, a newborn horse, a baby horse is born, with the innate knowledge of how to walk. We don't mean that the horse could pick up a piece of chalk and go to the blackboard and explain to us, that's not the kind <laughs> of knowledge we're talking about. We're not talking about conceptual knowledge when we say innate knowledge. All we're saying is that a horse is born and four hours later, it's walking. 
It's prancing about. <laughs> now, now, if you've ever if you've ever tried to teach a human baby to walk, it takes months and months. It, it, it takes at least a year just before they start to even begin. To <laughs> it takes months to teach them to crawl. Well, think Please, about it. We're moving our pants. We're moving our pants. For, and basic skills like just language. You know, when I was a kid and they taught me where babies came from for the first time, it was a total revelation. <laughs> Humans are not born with knowledge. Mm -hmm. Everything I know, I learned. And it's just that simple for humans. Uh, it's not like a bird without any training, it will migrate south for the winter. Some bird species will build nests without any training at all. But you're absolutely right. Even for humans, think of the first two, three, four years, we're still getting the basic skills of walking, talking, not pooping our pants. <laughs> and people, people want to give the counter example of, well, I remember when I was 18 months old and I was figuring out do you realize how long 18 months is and how much you picked up over the course of 18 months? And that, that is longer than the lifespan of certain animals. So, certain yeah, animals right. When we talk about instincts in the context of tabula rasa, that's what we're talking about. Now you're right. We do develop what we also call instincts over the course of time, but that's not what we're talking about in that context. In no, which Ayn says human beings don't have instincts. It's not innate. In fact, it's very, very learned and trained and carefully inculcated. And so if we, I take that term from an Olympic coach who used that term, um, mm -hmm. trained instinct, which I, is kind of paradoxical, isn't it? Right. Yes. But I think what he was getting at is you really can't think about uh, athletic performance and all the details, all you can think about is that one little cutting edge part of it. The rest of it has to be automatic and you have to just give yourself the order and automatically do all those things that you trained in and automatized. Education yes. is a process of automatizing. Education isn't hearing about something. Education is building it into your consciousness and in physical uh, performance, your physical body. Yeah, and the example for all the guitar players out there, because we've got a bunch of them, is yeah, we do. <laughs> you, could, you could play guitar by theory, by knowing what to do, knowing where to put, and then thinking about where to put your fingers, and you will never be great until you automatize it, until you actually not just know it, but practice, put in the work, and uh, that that cannot be done. Any, and I'm in a counterexample. I have tried to do that, and I am the world's worst piano player, <laughs> the worst guitarist, because I think about everything I do. Last thing you want to do, you think the first time, and then you practice until you've got it down. Yeah, now we'll, we'll talk more about that in a bit. We, we will. So let's <laughs> let's jump to question three, which is a real short question and a real long answer. And we, we may just read the start of this before we discussed it. But the question is. Do you think it is rational to be afraid of flying? Now that that doesn't that seems like a disjointed question. The first half of the question doesn't seem like it could be attached to the last half. <laughs> rational to have a fear, but Leonard Pigoff handles this much better than I probably would have, because he starts off by saying, well, not necessarily. For instance, a lot of the fear of flying is from phobia which is like a displaced anxiety where the person doesn't realize what their general anxiety in life, what it is and how it's caused. So they focus on a specific object, such as airplanes. Now that's an interesting example. He goes on, that's a problem, but it's not necessarily irrational and not necessarily evasive. The person may have no idea of that or of what to do about it. Then he goes on, I know people who have had very bad 
experiences flying. In one case, I was told of a plane struck by lightning, and then it was actually raining into the plane. If that person now says, well, statistics say flying is perfectly safe, but I don't want to fly anymore. That I do not regard as irrational, especially if other forms of transportation are possible. And then he, he gives the example, too, of Ayn Rand didn't fly very much. She did when it was important to her. But, you know, given the way she presented the deterioration of technology in Atlas Shrugged, she preferred to avoid flying unless there was a really compelling value at stake. That was well, interesting to me. Yeah, well, you know, you'd be a fool to ignore. Let's say you got on a plane and you see the pilot come on and he seems inebriated and you can smell <laughs> alcohol. Yeah. You would be a fool to ignore that. Yes. If you were the last plane that was allowed to land in a blizzard in the Midwest, you would be a fool to be completely oblivious to that, even if there was nothing you could do about it. If you had something you could do about it and say, well, maybe I'll delay my flight. <laughs> I'll wait till the weather gets better. That would make perfect sense. But you know, there's other cases. Um, my very best friend, uh, male friend in the world, his aunt died in a commercial airline crash with hundreds of other people. And uh, he flies commercially, but members of his family were reluctant for a while to get on commercial. And if it happened to someone you know and love and were close with, you that might be a perfectly reasonable period to go through. Now take Ayn Rand. Ayn Rand, of course, one of the things Barbara Brandon and her biography, generously defining it thus, uh, of Ayn Rand says that Ayn Rand had a neurotic fear of flying. Now, of course, Ayn Rand was born in 1905, about the same time Orville and Wilbur Wright were first developing mechanized flight. <laughs> flight did not become regular until the 1930s and did not become a commonplace until the middle of the 20th century. And uh, uh, the way it was described is Ayn Rand did go on the flight and it was a bumpy, rough flight. And yet she was totally relaxed, had fun through the entire flight, the bumpy flight. There was nothing she could do about it. She, In the end, she enjoyed the whole flight experience. And after that, even after, uh, was it circa 1961, I think she took her first commercial airline flight. <coughs> she still took flights occasionally after that, but she preferred to drive for various other reasons as well. See the countryside, things like that. She really much preferred the private automobile where she could look out the window and see the country and all that other sort of stuff. Uh, uh, so there could be all kinds of various reasons why people and contexts. And that's the thing about a fear of flying. You have to recognize the person's context. There are perfectly reasonable contexts to be afraid about getting on a plane, no matter what you hear about the statistics. And it would be irresponsible to be unaware of the comparative safety of planes and other things. And just, okay, I'm just gonna put my faith in other people, you know, my whole, turn my whole judgment over to other people. They say it's safe to fly whenever. So I just get on whatever plane at any time. No, of course not. And that's exactly, I think, getting back to what we were saying before. Courage is simply an application of reason to the problem of survival. I'm sorry, if my pilot gets on and he seems drunk, I'm gonna to ask to get off that plane. I'm not just going to put put my faith in flying and that flying is safer than the you know the, the highways of America and all those other statistics. Uh, no, no. Yes. And jumping forward, Leonard, Dr. Pigoff does say, I'll give you one more reason why I don't think fear of flying is irrational. If you, as things stand today, so this is after 2001, and you know what happened to airline security oh, yeah. at that point, 
if you as things stand today have an aversion to being crammed, mobbed, treated like cattle, and groped by the government, you don't <laughs> want to fly. Right. I think that's perfectly understandable. They've made Oh no, it was horrific what happened after. Yeah, what happened after 9/11/2001 was overkill and horrific. For years later they were still groping old ladies at old at rest at uh, airports uh, to make sure that they weren't terrorists. I mean, really absurd um, that, you know, but yeah, exactly <laughs> there are all right. kinds of other reasons why one might not like flying either. Now, before I go on to the next question, and we've just got a couple left. Thank you to Apollo Zeus for the super yes. chat. Thank yeah. you for the two pounds. And I've got to say, if you've got any questions, please enter them in as super chats. Your super chats do support the Ayn Rand Center UK, and that support is greatly appreciated and greatly needed. You can also support us if you're watching this video after the fact with the super thanks feature, similar to the super chat. Again, support the ARC UK. We very much appreciate that. And if you're not a member yet, of course, you're already members. But if you're not, aynrandcenter.co.uk slash membership or just go to aynrandcenter.co.uk and click membership at the top. There are four membership levels to choose from, all sorts of perks. Even at the most basic level, you get access to James Valiant's Sunday morning discussions of the ominous parallels and the rise of Hitler's Germany. And that includes the discussions of much more than the rise of Hitler's Germany, including the philosophical founding of the United States of America, which is such an inspiring discussion. You want to be part of that. You want to be part of the Ayn Rand Fiction Group. We're discussing the Fountainhead on Tuesday afternoons right now. Aynrandcenter.co.uk. Center is spelled R-E because they're British, you know, Ayn Rand Center UK. So back to the theater and center and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. Back to the discussion, though, because this was interesting. And initially, and maybe more than initially, I had a bit of a disagreement with the answer on this one. Question number five. Uh, here we go. Skydiving. Mm. Skydiving. Mm. Skydiving has been a fear of mine for as long as I can remember. Okay. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I mean, why does that come up? Is are you living a life where people are? You should be skydiving. Well, it's no, a I'm afraid of it. <laughs> it's a family of skydivers. He was pressured as a toddler to go skydiving. Yes. Junior, everybody in our family is skydiving. You're going to skydive. Maybe he came from a family of skydivers. I don't know. <laughs> so, so the questioner asks: Skydiving has been a fear of mine for as long as I can remember. If I could go through with it. I would have a deep feeling of satisfaction and accomplishment. Is it irrational to want to conquer fear? And again, Dr. Peikoff's initial answer threw me for a bit. He says, my answer is no. What is the purpose you have in doing this jumping? Are you joining the underground in World War II or what? <laughs> the fact that something is risky, but you don't want to do it, and you're afraid to do it, is not a reason to do it. <laughs> if you're thinking this way, you must have something on your mind, such as, well, other people do it. So my inability to do it proves I'm no good, or, or I'm not a man if I can't undertake this, or, or I shouldn't give in to fear. All of these are invalid reasons. You shouldn't care in issues like this what other people think. You shouldn't define masculinity in emotional terms. And above all, as a negative emotion or conquering a negative emotion. Moreover, you can't make an absolute out of, or you should never give in to fear. 
<laughs> Why not? What if there's a basis for being afraid? <laughs> another one of those sentences taken out of context. If the value in question is huge, then you say, okay, I've got to do it, however afraid I am. But you're talking about recreation here. You're talking about enjoying yourself. It's basically the equivalent of going to a roller coaster. And even there, if you were afraid, you could say you're just doing it for fun. So why do something you're afraid of? You can conquer fear only if you want to achieve some rational value. You could say, and I would agree, that modest little twinges of fear are no problem, like the ones you would have in a roller coaster or with kids who like to scream at the monster in a movie and do not regard it as frightening. Uh, but if you feel that much fear to the point that overcoming it would represent a profound feeling of satisfaction and accomplishment, well, that is wrong. You have accomplished nothing. You maybe would have had a thrill or gotten an ulcer, but it has nothing to do with your life. And if that's what satisfies you, you should look elsewhere and not try to train yourself to conquer any fear. Otherwise, you should say, You'll go in a pit with lions or snakes. Well, see, that's it. I have a fear of drinking arsenic. <laughs> and, you know, just simply overcoming the fear of drinking arsenic is not a value to me. I want to keep that fear. I cherish that fear. I value that fear. I like that fear. I want to keep that fear. And I don't want it to go anywhere. So merely overcoming a fear, if it's a perfectly rational fear, is actually an irrational uh, goal to seek. I do not want to end all fear. Fear, like you were saying about emotions generally yesterday, all of our emotions you know, are there in effect for a reason. They are automatized value judgments. It, they hinge for their validity on the validity of the value judgments that underlie them. Now, if I'm afraid for neurotic purposes, you know, if I'm just neurotically afraid of doing something and I would get a value out of it, well, yeah, that's the kind of fear you do want to overcome because that's the kind of neurotic i'm a i have social fear and social anxiety say i have low self-esteem and so i get anxious every time i walk into a cocktail party well if i want to meet people and in, improve my life you know i want to meet the pretty girl at the party i have to take steps to overcome that social fear and uh so that's a rational fear to overcome uh you, you know <clears throat> i can't help but tell the story my co-author on creating christ his mother, after she turned 80, she'd made, man, I forget this though, after 80, because she knew she was 80 and there wasn't that much life left after her. She said, well, I'd always wanted to jump out of an airplane. So I jumped out of an airplane. So she invited her son, my buddy, my co-author to go skydiving with her, something he probably would never have done, but it really was mom doing it that got him to do it. He did it. He, afterwards, he simply regretted it. He oh, said, no. sure, it was a thrill. <laughs> sure, it was a thrill, but why did I why did I do that? I didn't need to overcome that fear. I wasn't in the military as paratro paratrooper or in the French resistance where I needed to paratroop behind enemy lines or something where there are skills. I mean, take going to the moon. There we have a tremendous value. We could learn all kinds of scientific information. Who knows what it means about the future of humanity going out into space, too? So there could be a huge value on the line. 
But still, when we went to the moon, did we just go to the moon? No, we took, you know, minor uh, practice trips. We, we, we went through all the possibilities. We trained them. We took every safety precaution we could. We went into orbit first. Then we went into orbit around the moon first. And then we finally did land on the moon. So we're going to take this in stages. We're going to take every rational precaution we can. Of course, it still was tremendously courageous of the astronauts to do what they did. Astronauts did die in the 1960s during the space program. But think of the huge value of scientific knowledge that we had potentially to gain. Now, shouldn't it, it should not have been subsidized by the government, obviously. But ignoring that, if there's a value, a real value, such as important scientific knowledge or the future colonization of the solar system by humanity, uh, whatever you think of that possibility, if there's a huge value on the line, then it's worth taking the risk. Then it's worth overcoming the fear. And uh, unless you're neuro, you know, the, what was that old detective show, Monk? about the detective who was afraid of everything and had every neurosis in the book. Well, if you're like him, then yeah, overcoming your fears as such is a good thing because he's afraid of everything. He's afraid of, you know, walking up one step of a stepladder. He's afraid of going out in public. <laughs> so yeah, for him, he needs to systematically overcome his phobias uh, because they're hampering. They're actually encumbering his coping mechanisms with life. It's getting in the way of his happiness. Well, yeah. Now you have a now you should systematically overcome fear as such because fear has taken over your life. But you still don't want to eliminate every fear. You don't want to automatize fear of people pointing guns at you or something or walking into a lion's den like like Dr. Peacock says. No. And I'm going to say it again. I know I'm stuck like a stuck record here, but the real virtue of courage is merely an application of reason to the problem of survival. Do not let the irrational stop you. Do not let uh, uh, an emotion that's overwhelming you that doesn't co correspond to your judgment, even if it is a complex abstract judgment, prevent you. On the other hand, don't ignore facts, <laughs> which really are indicating an objective danger that says that this action isn't worth it. Reason, it's the application of reason to the problem of survival. Taking risks is necessary. We get great benefit from taking risks. So many risks are rational. And those are the kind of fears that are perfectly rational to work on overcoming or dealing with. But only those. <laughs> I, I'm going to have to remain skeptical on this. I'm going to have to think more about it. We have a good friend, for example, who sort of had a reawakening in her life. She'd li lived a quiet life and faced a lot of challenges and never really. And then at some point in her life, she changed everything. And one of the things that she did is she went skydiving mm -hmm. and realized that she can face fears, that she can accept a certain amount of risk tolerance, and more than that, that she's open to adventure. And it really had a profound impact on her life. I think of people who do fire walks, for example, people who face fears they never thought they could face. And rationally, they realize, okay, this is very low risk, but they've automatized fear in the sense of, of not acting on what they want because of fear. You know, I, I wonder if there's value in that because it I seems there to is. Be. The way you describe your friend, there's absolutely a value in that. If that changed her perspective on life, if that opened her up to all kinds of other new possibilities, uh, then the risk seems to have been worth it, eh? 
Yeah, I, I know there are people, and you know, I'm somewhat like this, people with, with a lower risk tolerance. Maybe we should be able to just rationally say in any context, here are the numbers, here's what I'm going to do. But it does seem like habituating, again, not taking you know, life-threatening risks, and you could argue whether skydiving is that or not, but just accepting more risk. Well, geez, stepping out of your comfort zone can be some yes. of the most profitable experiences. I know yes. they're some of the most profitable experiences I have. Being vulnerable Ooh. in an intimate relationship. There, there's a kind of courage that has all kinds of feedback. If you're vulnerable in an intimate relationship, the, the potential payoff is enormous, is enormous. And yet it takes a degree of courage. But yes. let me put it this way. There has to be an objective value. You described yeah. the objective value that this person got out of skydiving. And look at the objective value she got out of it. If it's like that, then, yeah, I think it's worth it. Because look at how it dramatically improved her life. Yeah. And she wasn't. Because I understand what Dr. Pico was saying, and she wasn't somebody who was doing it so everybody would be impressed. And right. I, I, I get that, yes, there are right. lots of bad reasons. Or, or some teenage do. boy doing something really reckless to impress the girls. Yes. I mean, well, I, I, you know, it seems to me 19-year-old boys are uh, believe themselves to be invincible sometimes, yeah. and well, they'll do just about anything to impress people, uh, you know, with their machismo, especially if there's uh, females present. <laughs> but uh, well, so I've seen that kind of recklessness uh, and machismo, uh, but, uh, and that I think is what Dr. Peacock means, just yeah. foolhardy uh, doing it to impress people or something. One of the things that uh, my friend, um, it's actually my friend, but it's Robert's friend too, kind of. <laughs> she, uh, she's actually my best friend uh, since I had, since I was a teenager. And um, uh, what she did, not only did she do sky, sky dove, but um, she had a picture of her skydiving in a way that you can see the curvature of the earth in the blackness of space. <laughs> And um, so it's her with, you know, in tandem, you know, with another person right. on her and uh, uh, guiding her um, in this picture, you know, it's, I mean, the picture for, I think for her was really important to have because it was a reminder to her that she could overcome a lot of things uh, because she's done that. And uh, yeah. Yeah. See, again, I, I, I'm not sure Peacock would disagree with your examples. Um, if, but, but I think those are specific cases. I, for example, would not need to do that to, uh, <laughs> to take the risks that I've taken in life. I'm proud of the risks that I've taken. I've taken some risks in life, but I didn't need that experience to confirm in me my own courage. Does that make you, sense? For decades facing the world's criminal element, you will face all sorts of risk. Well, no, but actually, there have experiences in my life where I've actually been in danger, you know, in a, a cave where the water was sucking, the ocean water was sucking a friend of mine out. I had to go in, keep a hold of him, sort of risking my life and safety to do that. But I judged it. I judged I could probably do it. So I did it. It took a degree of courage to do it. But when you, re when you have experiences like that in life, I think they are valuable. And whether it's skydiving or just facing a crisis, so you increased your confidence. I had a friend who came back from Vietnam. 
you know, he won two uh, 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 medals for <laughs> his courage in, in, in that uh, unfortunate war. Um, and I had a conversation with him about it. He said, you know, you're really going to be, the, how are you going to behave under fire? And he said, you really don't know. But when you've done it, you have a sense of incredible confidence and self-control over you. You know how you cope with extreme fear. And that does increase your confidence. And there is a value to that. Now, I wouldn't send someone to Vietnam just to do that, would I? Nor would I put myself in that cave with my friend where we were both risking our lives at that moment to achieve that confidence. That would be unnecessary just to do if you, you know what I mean? On the other hand, yeah. if you do have a fear to overcome or if confidence is an issue, I could see it being a rational development, epiphany, something you'd want to do. Uh, we do have a question in the super chat that may or may not be related. Um, you can see how you interpret this because I'm not too sure. But William Hyman with 35 African Rand. South African Rands, yeah. Yes. Wow. That's this question. How, or so he says thank you and says, how does Ayn Rand define an accident? Now I'm trying to think how with what the, if that question has to do with the context of our discussion here. Right. Um, I mean, metaphysically, there are no accidents. Right. Everything is. Uh, Ayn Rand believes in causality and the law of identity. Things are what they are, and they always act in accordance with their nature. And even in cases of human volition, our choices are not uh, limitless. <laughs> we don't have omnipotent magical powers with our free will. We only have the choices available to us and only insofar as we're aware of them and engage our free will. And we must choose. I mean, choosing is the thing that humans have to do one way or another. So even in cases of free will, I wouldn't use the word accident. It was either on purpose or done negligently, or it was just the causal reality of you know planets going around the sun. So in one sense, we deny the existence of anything called an accident. There is a context in which you could call something accident or chance, and that simply reflects human ignorance. If I'm not aware of the possibilities, or if some rare possibility came across and just happened, to, to, to make my surprise, I would call that an accident. Yes. So in other words, a traffic accident is something that I did not reasonably anticipate, but it was perfectly possible. And once I knew it happened, you can look back on it and say, well, given his recklessness, given this context of my car, it, there was nothing accidental about it. He was reckless or my car was uh, deficient. You see, no. so metaphysically, yeah. there's no accidents. There's simply ignorance on humans. It's like randomness, which often disappears once you learn enough, you get enough information, or it may be a context where there won't be enough information. So at least from our perspective, it's random, but we know underneath everything happened for the reasons that it happened. And the connection so, here is of course, acting in the face of ignorance. Yes. Act because oftentimes we are never omniscient and oftentimes we don't have critical information that is relevant to acting. And so sometimes we have to use our best judgment. If, we, if we're compelled to act, and we don't know everything, and we know there's things we don't know or not sure of, we'll have, simply have to act on the best of our judgment at the time. Um, and again, courage is going by the best of your judgment at the time. It's an application of reason to the problem of survival. Right. So before I get to the next question, Bonnie is also in the super chat with a shout out to Rosie. She says, thank you, Rosie and all your minions? Does that make us minions? Are we minions? I'm proud to be a Razi. I'm a proud Razi minion. 
<laughs> Thank, Thank you, you very much. Honor. Talk about a courage, courageous guy. Rosie is a man of courage, confidence, and, and rationally so. So <laughs> thank you. Let's zoom out a little bit here. We talked about a few different specifics, but the next question asks, how does acceptance of a philosophy of reason increase one's confidence? And this is one where I immediately had the same reaction as Dr. P. I shouldn't be so presumptuous. His answer is better than anyone I would have given, but I immediately thought, yes, this is where you go with this one. Because he starts out his answer saying, first of all, philosophy as such cannot increase your confidence or change you in any way, not simply the existence of the philosophy. Only if you integrate it into your thought and then apply it, are your desires consonant and the actions that you choose are consistent. If you accept and objectively integrate Ayn Rand's philosophy, then I would say that if you lacked confidence before, you certainly can increase it. Just the sheer fact of saying, I rely on reason, not revelation, gives you much greater intellectual confidence because otherwise you are blind. If you take something on faith, you have no means to know what is true. You are assailed by doubt. And uh, he goes on, but I'll stop there for now. And in that sense, yes, it's, it's not a question of, because newcomers to objectivism, I should say some old timers in objectivism, will sometimes wear the objectivism badge as if that by itself has some, some value. And no, it's, it's what, what did you do with these ideas? Or not even what did you do with these ideas? What did you, because of these ideas, do with your life? See, a critical part of objectivism is the rejection of the theory-practice dichotomy. Yes. Knowledge... Reason is an instrument of knowledge. Reason is an instrument of survival. Um, and, uh, you know, there's an end to it. It isn't an end in itself. You can accept a philosophy abstractly. And if you don't act on it, it is just so many words in your head, right? It's just some mental chess game, some, some jigsaw puzzle you're doing in your head. Now, a vital principle of objectivism is just that, that our reason is a functional device. It's our only way of knowing at the conceptual level, and it's our most basic and fundamental means of survival. Uh, you have to act on it. You have to integrate it into your life. You have to habituate it. Uh, objectivist morality does not create good character. Just knowing about it, acting on objectivist morality is what habituates good character, and uh, that's what takes the courage. But having a good philosophy can provide the base the confidence. And so having a rational philosophy can certainly, and certainly one that rejects the theory practice dichotomy uh, altogether, uh, is of course the, uh, first it'll give you the confidence of knowing what you're doing <laughs> and knowing that you, what you know, at least you know. <clears throat> Secondly, it'll tell you, you've got to act on it and you've got to enact it. <clears throat> That's going to take some courage and it's going to rely though on the confidence that only a good philosophy can give you. And it stands to reason because similar to the issue of pride and self-esteem, if you were going to adopt this philosophy and now I'm proud because I'm an objectivist. No, no, no. You don't want to be proud to be an objectivist. You want to use objectivism to be a man you are proud to be. Right. You want self-esteem from what you actually do. That's it. No ideology can create good character. Isn't that interesting? There are ideologies which are impossible to develop good character with or under. That's for sure. But just knowing something isn't going to get you to act on it. And it's acting and knowing 
that develops moral character. Those right. automatized, trained instincts that we were talking about before, they really aren't instincts, though that automatized character, that ability to, like we were talking about earlier, that can only come about from acting consistently on that knowledge. And now it becomes automatized and you really don't even have to think about it. Your natural response is the one that's based on a sound philosophy. And if your philosophy is a rational one and, you're, and you know it's a rational one, then that'll give you the confidence to have the courage to act. And that's one of the great things about this book. And add to that a couple of appearances that Leonard Peikoff has made since his retirement. Is I love seeing the personal side or the applied side of the philosophy. Leonard Peikoff has given us so much over the years all of the lectures at the Ford Hall Forum, all of the courses that he gave, which fortunately were recorded and now are freely available through the Ayn Rand University and the Ayn Rand Institute. But seeing him do applied objectivism or the kind of peace of mind and humor that you got to see during the Ayn Rand Center UK's appearances with Leonard Peikoff on his birthday and then his discussion of operetta, you get to see the payoff. You get to see that side of it. You get to see these ideas aren't for academics and they're not for impressing other objectivists they are for using to to make your own life the best it can be and if you want confidence don't just adopt these ideas apply these ideas use this philosophy for what it's for right and all i can do is harken back to our last week's discussion if you haven't heard it go back to it because ayn rand herself provided uh numerous examples in her own life of rational courage of taking risks that really paid off for her because they were rational risks, but which took enormous courage, whether it was coming to America as a woman alone at the age of 21 to a country where she barely spoke the language, determined to become a novelist in that country, uh, halfway around the world, you know, to America, escaping the Soviet Union, you know, lying to get out of the Soviet Union, tripping her husband on a bus, your future husband on a bus just to meet him taking controversial stands that everyone left and right disagreed with, and she stuck to it, sticking to the fountainhead after being rejected by 12 different publishers, being able to say no to a Texas millionaire who was going to give her, you know, up to a million dollars if she just compromised and stuck in some religion, things like that. Ayn Rand uh, was a living example of courage in this regard, and uh, the, the objective value that can come of that is enormous, nothing short of the art and philosophy of Ayn Rand. So in applied objectivism, we talked last week about Ayn Rand heroes, and of course, concluded that Ayn Rand was the greatest of the Ayn Rand heroes. It's <laughs> funny, because I often quip that, you know, I want to be Howard Rourke when I grow up. And I don't think that's too presumptuous, because I may not reach Howard Rourke's level of ability, but I can reach his level of independence, his level of integrity. But the funny thing is, it does sound presumptuous if I ever say, I want to be Ayn Rand when I grow up. <laughs> That's too much. You know, that, you know, the truth is that when people do it in reality, that is way more intimidating, isn't it? <laughs> because it is in reality. And Ayn Rand was like one of her heroes, every, all the way down to her toes. And so in a sense, it is much more intimidating. You know, the other thing is, is that you, the form of our courage is going to be different from person to person right? It's going to be a loyalty to our values, right? And a loyalty to the, uh, the, 
integrity of our own consciousness is confidence. So those kind of values, if rational, if they're applications of reason, um, are going to be different from person to person. And some people may not in the course of their lives ever have to risk their lives for their values. Hopefully not. That's a rare occurrence. Right. Uh, uh, but, you know, a lot, most of us are going to face, as you pointed out yesterday in your podcast, suffering, death, setbacks. Um, and those are, to keep going, those do take courage, rational courage. It may be different in your case, maybe different in someone else's case. You may be someone out there, and I know someone out there right now, who's just got a diagnosis of cancer in his brain, and he can no longer work. To enter this new phase of his life is taking tremendous courage, and it's unique to him. Uh, but yeah, life will always hit us with some suffering. It's inevitable, really. And the courage that it takes to cope with that is going to be different from person to person. But it's about you. It's about your life. It's about making the most of, as you point out, the limited lives that we all have. Um, that's the most courageous thing of all. Well, I don't think I can wrap it up any better than that. James, thank you for another outstanding discussion. Thank you to everybody in the chat. Thank you to the contributors of Super Chatters for supporting the Ayn Rand Center UK. <sighs> Looking forward to the next of these discussions. Oh, real quick, last minute Super Chat from Anthony who says, any views on Thomas Jefferson and his daughter, Marta, effect on his writing? Well, that's, that's a big question to throw in at the end of the show. And I, I don't know that I have an answer, but James Tom was close to his Tom was close to his oldest surviving daughter Mar Martha. Uh, she went on to you know uh, have children and descendants. She was an important part of his life, uh, but that takes us way far afield. <laughs> but, you know, we should have a discussion one day about the courage of people like uh, the founding fathers. <laughs> that that would be a good discussion, especially because they were interesting and complex and enormous heroes, but not simple at all. So yes, let's do that after we wrap up this series, which is far from over. Keeping it real, this book has been, uh, I would say, a godsend just because I don't have a better metaphor. Outstanding collection, outstanding insights from you. Again, as always, James, thank you for that. Thank we you. look forward to talking to everybody next week. Thank you so much for joining us. Have an outstanding afternoon. Take care.